This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. And a very good afternoon to you. Great to have you along today. This hour, there are several live export ships taking cattle to Indonesia this month, but it's the number of cattle getting left behind that's got Northern Australia's beef industry a little bit concerned. We'll get to that shortly here on the Country Hour. And also a new interactive heat map that's been published online by the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries shows the spread of the varroa mite right across that state. But now that it's gone into a management phase of this particular pest, eventually that map is going to be a countrywide map of Australia just showing the spread of the varroa mite. We'll look at that shortly here on the Country Hour. It is six past 12 on the ABC right across Western Australia and on the ABC Listen app. Now, first up today, the Livestock Export Regulator, the Federal Department of Agriculture, has paused the deployment of independent observers on livestock vessels to all countries in the Middle East region due to the current uncertain security situation. As you would have heard, as you would have seen in the news, Israel has cut food supplies to Gaza and Hamas as threatened to start killing hostages as that conflict between the two sides continues. More than 1,600 people have so far been killed on both sides since Hamas launched attacks into Israel at the weekend. Mark Harvey Sutton is the CEO of the Australian Livestock Exporters Council. Mark, what information has the regulator given you about this decision? Uh, my understanding, Belinda, is that they have done this on uh, a risk basis. Uh, they're Commonwealth employees uh, that that uh, observe uh, these voyages. And uh, given the recent events in Israel uh, and the Hamas attacks on Israel, uh, they've determined that as a precaution, uh, they won't be sending their staff into the into the region. What are the implications for? Uh, livestock shipments to this region without those independent observers on board? Uh, For us, Belinda, it's business as usual uh, because we did have a two-year period where we didn't have independent observers on vessels uh, during COVID. Uh, Indeed, there are a number of markets that independent observers still don't uh, go to, uh, even though they would uh, meet the requirements of having an independent observer. Markets such as China... Uh, where it's difficult for, to repatriate uh, people, uh, that that's still occurring. So there are a number of voyages and markets that don't have independent observers. And uh, quite frankly, uh, with the animal welfare performance of the industry, uh, we'll just keep doing what we do well. Considering the circumstances in this region, what about the companies, the, the livestock export companies themselves, is there a concern that they may stop those shipments as a result of what we're seeing in the Middle East? Oh, those companies have to make an assessment uh, based on their own uh, risk profiles. Uh, and look, they do know those markets and regions very well. Uh, they'll be making decisions based on the facts they have at hand. Uh, and of course, it's up to 
uh, individuals uh, if they want to uh, uh, participate in those voyages and things like that. So uh, it, it's business as usual. Uh, I, what doesn't change is the demand for uh, livestock from those markets. Uh, and as long as it is safe to ship, uh, that will continue as far as I understand. But does it compromise the animal welfare standards on board these shipments? Without independent observers, you mean? Yes. Not at all. Not at all. They're observers. Uh, they do not manage the voyage. So the fact we have had such outstanding animal welfare outcomes has been as a result of the systems and processes that exporters have in place. Those observers are there to merely observe uh, those processes. Uh, and so it's the exporters that execute uh, those arrangements uh, and that'll continue. And so those uh, reporting back to the regulator, the Department of Agriculture, that still is maintained? Absolutely. And what a lot of people uh, don't realise is every voyage, every livestock voyage, be it a short haul, long haul, there are significant reporting requirements already, uh, be they from the accredited stock hands that are on board or if there's a vet on the board on, on the vessel, they will uh, be reporting constantly. So there's no shortage of information or updates that the department uh, receives and uh, I'm very confident they'll continue to receive that assurance as those voyages uh, take place. Mark, does the compromise the, the current applications in to uh, get an opportunity to export into Saudi Arabia to reopen that particular market with the circumstances in, in the Middle East that we're seeing? No, we, we've got to take it back to the, the, the uh, fact this is a decision made by an employer uh, about their staff. And in this instance, it's the, the Commonwealth Government. Uh, they have made an assessment against the risk profile they're willing to have their officers uh, participate in, uh, and they've made the call not to uh, put those staff into those circumstances. So uh, it, it, as far as I understand, while tensions are high in that region, uh, it is quite uh, isolated in one sense. I don't know if... Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I should be commenting on geopolitics in that context, but um, it is a conflict in one country and there are a range of other markets that still uh, take our livestock uh, and exporters will be monitoring that uh, constantly uh, and I believe it will still be uh, very safe to continue to trade. And in terms of new markets, I don't see why this would impact that. So at this point, business as usual? That's correct. Mark, good to talk to you. Thank you. No, thanks, Belinda. Mark Harvey Sutton, he is the CEO of the Australian Livestock Exporters Council and just commenting on the news today that the Federal Department of Agriculture, the Livestock Export Regulator, has paused the deployment of independent observers on livestock vessels to all countries in the Middle East region due to the current uncertain security situation. 12 past 12 here on the Country Hour. Well, there's several live export ships taking cattle to Indonesia this month, but it's the number of cattle that are getting left behind that's got Northern Australia's beef industry concerned. For almost three months now, federal government vets have been rejecting cattle with any form of skin blemish which is ruling out massive amounts of top-end cattle. The Federal Department of Agriculture says its vets are doing this to ensure cattle exports meet requirements of the Indonesian Quarantine Authority. 
NT cattle producer and former president of the Cattle Council of Australia, Marcus Rathsman, is getting ready to sell cattle in the coming weeks and says the situation makes no sense and government needs to sort it out quickly. Well, the trade's been very slow. It's never really closed, but the trade's certainly slow. And my understanding is it's not the Indonesians um, rejecting the cattle. It's basically our own Aquis inspectors. Um, And that's a real concern because it's costing producers and exporters a hell of a lot of money. And there's been, I think, runs of up to 40% where there's been rejections. Um, And unfortunately, the wording is is also terrible, Matt. Um, The animals are said to have lesions, but that's certainly not the case. And the dictionary meaning of a lesion is a structural change resulting from injury or disease. And the animals certainly don't have disease and they certainly don't have injuries. So it's clearly not the right word for anyone to be using for these cattle. Um, So these animals are being rejected basically because they've got skin blemishes. And it's a sad reflection that an animal with a skin blemish is being rejected. Mm. We saw some of your animals this morning, beautiful little healthy Brahmins with, yeah, just the littlest black marking here and there and you said they would not be allowed on a boat correct they're animals that are being rejected now by selectors or by aquas inspectors and and it's ridiculous you are due to sell cattle in december this year all of those cattle will come off the floodplain country how concerned are you yeah look i think it's a concern for everybody doesn't matter whether you're on the floodplain or a um in the middle of the territory If you're getting sort of 40% rejections or 30%, it's going to cost you a fortune. Um, And the boat market is our only viable market. We know the market has largely collapsed for Brahmin cattle in Queensland. Um, People are being penalised. So we've bred these cattle and, uh, you know, things aren't looking very good. Naturally, on the floodplain country, you know, there is a large insect burden and they will be bitten by flies because a fly tag only lasts for three months anyway. So there'll always be some sort of fly bites or insects, but they're certainly not lesions, mm. if you know what I mean. There'll be a skin blemish from a fly bite or it's just over the top and it's never been an issue in the past. Um, I think that there was a case, you could say, while we were trying to satisfy Indonesian concerns of our um, freedom from LSD um, for caution by inspectors or selectors, but that time has now passed and we've certainly re-established our disease-free credentials. So there needs to be a resetting of what is suitable. And uh, those guidelines are very clearly stated within the Australian, within ASIL, within the Australian Standard and Export of Livestock. And that obligation is to send disease-free, sound livestock. It's not to reject an animal based on a skin blemish. It's pure and simple. Have you sat here at Mount Ringwood and thought about what your plan B is if that day in December comes and you're getting 30 40%, maybe more, getting rejected from the trade? Well, I guess the plan B for everybody is you, you might grow them out to a different weight and you hope certainly that things might change or if you've got the feed, you'll try and hold them. If you haven't, um, then I guess we're stuck with uh, trying to send them to Queensland. 
um, because Wait. live export is our only option up here. It's, it's to get them on the boat. Um, and economically, it's, it's all downhill if we have to do that, if we have to go and send them interstate. So a challenging time. I think we can hear a helicopter in the distance hovering around. There's road trains. There's all this action going on in the North cattle industry, but a real problem at the far end. Yeah. Well, the helicopter's actually just trying to clean up some feral buffalo. But <laughs> Who lies... have probably got a better... <laughs> They've got more market guarantee at the moment almost. Well, there lies the great irony, Matt, is that um, at the moment there's demand for scrub bulls and some feral buffalo, and we can't put a uh, high-grade domesticated Brahmin steer on the boat because he might have a skin blemish, you know. It's, um, it's a bit ridiculous. How hopeful are you that this can be resolved soon? Um, look, the trouble with common sense is it's not that common, so I'm really worried because it is hurting a lot of producers and, um, and we don't seem to be making progress. I think we all thought that once we had re-established our disease-free credentials, the problem would pass, but it, it doesn't seem to be going away and um, we've got to get it sorted. Marcus Rathsman from Mount Ringwood Station in the Northern Territory speaking to Matt Brand. In a statement to the Country Hour from the Federal Department of Agriculture regarding this crackdown on cattle with skin blemishes, it says these are requirements of the Indonesian Quarantine Authority, not the Australian Department of Agriculture, who in this circumstance is regulating to ensure exports meet the importing country requirements. It says officers of the Department of Agriculture are working with Australian live cattle exporters and their representatives to ensure that close attention is being given to cattle that present with skin lesions consistent with clinical signs of infectious or contagious diseases and are not included in consignments intended for Indonesia. The Department of Agriculture understands how difficult this is for the industry. 19 past 12. You're with Belinda Varasgetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA. A new interactive heat map published online by the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries shows the spread of varroa mite right across that state. The colours vary depending on the mite load. So there's light pink for a low mite load and it goes all the way through to a dark purple colour for a high mite load. Deputy Incident Controller Shannon Mulholland says the map helps beekeepers right across the country keep an eye on the spread. That was a, a commitment to continue to provide beekeepers with information about where Varroa is present across the state. So it's quite similar to the previous online searchable map that we used to have on the website, which would show the various zones around the state. This heat map reflects where we're still finding infested premises or where we have previously found infested premises and it's mapped on a parish boundary basis. Um, so the little code on the side will basically give you an indication of this colour equals this many infested premises in that particular parish boundary and um, you can hover over the different sections to get a little bit more information about the number of infested premises in that zone. Okay, so it's interactive, yep. Uh, yeah, yeah, it is interactive. You can search around, you can zoom right in, you can zoom right out. 
and that's that's the first step in being able to provide that information to beekeepers. As we move towards a national system for being able to map and track varroa spread across the country. Um, now we're certainly hoping that that process will be very slow but what this information provides to beekeepers is an understanding of the relative level of risk of varroa presence and that allows them to make informed decisions for their business operations. And are there any new detections that you can see on the map? No, I don't believe there's been any new detections within the last few days represented on the map. We've had a lot of teams focusing on completing our euthanasia activities for the beekeepers who still wish to complete euthanasia on their hives. So that's taken a little bit of our focus around from surveillance activities, although we do still have teams active in surveillance. And beekeepers now are actually contacting us with their results and any suspect detections of role, we can follow that up with them, understand what's testing that they have done, what they may have found, and then provide guidance to them on the next steps. So how many infested premises are there now? How many new detections have there been in the last few weeks? In terms of the total number of infested premises, uh, we're sitting at 293 across the state. Okay, and where have the new ones been? Um, Predominantly within uh, that Kempsey zone and the bottom parts of the central coast, just where it's tipping into the Sydney basin. So how many beekeepers have actually elected for voluntary euthanasia? Um, The number varies between different regions. We've certainly seen uh, a lot of uptake uh, in the southern Sunraysia and Riverina sectors. And beekeepers are making these decisions based on a whole range of of personal and business circumstances related to their operations. And so our teams are still working very hard to try and complete that euthanasia work as rapidly as they can and then help the beekeepers work through that ORC process as well. So is there still quite a, a few to go then? There's still a few to go. Uh, We have completed the work in the Sunraysia, which is good. That's allowing us to consolidate our teams in the Riverina sectors um, around Uroli and Nericon. And we're we're sending more and more teams down there as as quickly as we possibly can because we really want to have that work finished as quickly as we can. We know that beekeepers really want to have that work finished as quickly as we can as well. And so we've been scaling up the resources there for a number of weeks now, just trying to get through that work. When varroa mite does spread, interstate will it then become a national map will you need other states on board for that yeah it will and this is um, a lot of what we're unpacking at the moment in terms of drafting the new response plan which will see out the remainder of that transition to management process over the next 12 months there's quite a bit of work that we can still do within the response program to support beekeepers adjust to living with varroa But anything that we work on moving forward, it has to be addressed at that national level and we have to make sure that the mechanisms that we're adopting are something that can be self-perpetuating beyond when the response actually shuts down. So that's why we're working very closely with industry, we're working very closely with our interstate jurisdiction colleagues. We want to be able to set up systems and processes that industry can be self-sustaining with moving forward as they adapt to living with this pest. And that way we have sustainability in that whole system. And so how soon will we see a a new response plan? Is that something that uh, the CCEP and National Management Group are yet to decide on? Uh, Yeah, that's correct. It's being drafted right now and we have the next round of meetings scheduled for early November to review the plan and to get first that technical endorsement and an agreement on what the strategy is moving forward. Shannon Mulholland, Deputy Incident Controller for the Varroa Mite Response with the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries. She was speaking to Kim Honan. 24 past 12. Well, some people are born into beekeeping and farming in general. For others, it comes later in life after trying other careers. Graham Creed was an ABC TV weather presenter 
for 14 years. And as he outlines in his new book, he thought that interest and knowledge in weather might help him with his new career as a farmer. I was always interested in the weather from being a young child. I grew up in Melbourne, and so I lived there for the first 21 years of my life. And it certainly wouldn't be unusual to see me sitting out on the house roof taking photos of incoming thunderstorms and hail and just general sunset sunrises, that sort of thing. So I always had a fascination with it. I had my own instrument shelter that I built in the backyard and so it was sort of a, a little bit of a natural transition then moving into the Bureau of Meteorology, although it probably wasn't until I actually finished my HSC that I sort of thought, hmm, I, I think something in the weather would actually be a really good career for me. And it was in the sense that it certainly gave you a career and, and you had a number of postings sort of around the country. And then at some point you ended up on TV. Yeah, and that didn't seem like a natural progression either, as you said. So I was posted around New South Wales. So back in those days, weather observers were posted to a state. So my first move was from Melbourne to Moree, which is a town of about 10,000 people up in the far northern inland of New South Wales. And so that was a bit of a culture shock, but um, I loved being in the country and absolutely loved my job. But after about 11 years, I just sort of thought I'd I'd like to try something different. And so I started looking for full-time jobs and just out of the corner of my eye in the newspaper, I saw weather and I read it and and it was an advertisement for a job on um, the Weather Channel on Ozstar. And so I applied for that and that was the beginning of what would become quite a long 21-year weather career on television. What, about 14 of those years were with the ABC, which where many of our listeners would recognise your voice or your your face as well from uh, being the weatherman for for so many years. During that time on TV as a weatherman, was there any point where you thought to yourself, well, next I'm going to be a farmer? No, not really. (laughs) (laughs) We... um... We just happened to to look at a, a couple of properties. We we used to go away for weekends. We had dogs and then we'd usually head to the coast. But we sort of thought, we need to find something that we can go to and perhaps something that we can retire to. And we just stumbled across this, this block of land. So it was 119 acres. And we sort of thought, ah. Oh, this is it. You know, it's got the view, it's got the potential of growing stuff on it. And yeah, that was how we sort of made the transition. We bought this property over about eight years. We slowly built up different things within it. So we were growing garlic. We had uh, quite a few beehives. We planted a lot of trees. So we planted a lot of manuka and jelly bush for the bees. So it was just a, a gradual transition that came to a head when one day we just sort of thought, oh, why are we doing this travel every weekend? You know, let's let's just move to the farm and, and try and make some money out of it. And you've still, are you garlic, as you mentioned, and then honey is still as well? No. So with the with the honey, as some people may have heard, the varroa mite arrived in Newcastle. That was in June last year, and it's just slowly been spreading. And a town near us uh, recorded a hive with the mite, and that meant that we fell into a a 10-kilometre eradication zone, so our beehives were euthanized. So that's all on hold now. Um, We will wait and see what happens with the mite, 
wait till um, the potential for mite numbers begins to ease back and we'll look then at whether or not we'll go back into honey. But we have the garlic. We also grow proteas, leucodendrons and leucospernums. So um, we've got plenty of, plenty of flower growing potential on the farm and we've just recently pretty much doubled that over the, the last 12 months. So it's a bit of a mix, nothing, nothing that's super huge. It's, it's just lots of different little things that uh, fall into place at different times of the year. What's it like there at the moment? Uh, what have conditions been like? Oh, look, it's really dry. I mean, when we first moved there, the first six months, it never stopped raining. After that, it became quite patchy. And then the last six months, it's hardly rained at all. So it's it's really dry. It's been a, a very warm winter and spring so far. We've, we've had you know days on end of, of 30 degrees and we've had a couple of days of around about 36 degrees. It's been quite a lot of fires around the region at the moment as well. So yeah, the, the, the dryness is a bit of a concern at the moment. What's been the biggest learning curve for you going from your previous role, weatherman, TV weather presenter, full-time farmer? What have been the, the big lessons? I suppose one of the big lessons, particularly in relation to what I was doing on television, so um, providing forecasts of weather conditions, and I always tried to make those forecasts more understandable to the people that were going to experience it. But being on the other side of it on the farm and looking at forecasts, often I sort of thought, gee, even though I was telling people what they could expect, I wasn't actually really fully aware of how they would be feeling as that weather was approaching. So, you know, the, the showers or thunderstorms in the forecast hasn't rained for two months. You know, that, that build up of anticipation and hope that you get only to have it dash because the, the thunderstorms go round you. That's something that I'd not really fathomed totally. And so that was that was a, a bit of a learning in that respect. And I suppose the other the other part is, you know, it's it's hard work. But I, I mean I love it, but physically it, it's very demanding, particularly the way that we're farming. We're we're trying to be as organic as possible. And so everything, pretty much everything's done by hand. We do have a tractor that we do a little bit of slashing with, but when we slash, we actually rake up the grass that we slash and use that as mulch for some of the garden beds. So it's quite physical work. And I think I knew that, but um, I think my body wasn't quite ready for it. (laughs) Former ABC TV weather presenter Graham Creed speaking to Selina Green about how he's given up the weather job and now farms about an hour north of Newcastle in New South Wales. His book is called Weatherman Goes Bush. 29 to 1 here on the Country Hour. Jonathan Hopper in the studio with the news headlines. Good afternoon, Belinda. The WA government says it's working with both Jewish and Palestinian communities to ensure safety in WA in the wake of conflict in the Middle East. A pro-Palestinian rally in Sydney overnight saw a crowd of about 1,000 protesters gather outside the Opera House. A 26-year-old man is facing a possible life jail term after pleading guilty to what police called a bikey-linked murder at a workshop in Perth's north. Joshua Duperuzel had been due to stand trial in the Supreme Court next year, accused of the fatal shooting of 34-year-old Joe Versace, but today in a surprise move, he admitted responsibility. He was remanded in 
custody until he faces a sentencing hearing in February. And West Coast has confirmed that retired captain Luke Shuey will join the club's coaching staff in 2024 as it looks to rebound from its wooden spoon season. Shuey will become the Eagles' stoppages coach as part of a raft of changes to the side's coaching panel. Thanks, Belinda. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Appreciate that. 28 to 1. You're with Belinda Varischetti on The Country Hour on ABC Local Radio, WA. Still to come, that uh, well, tragic news coming through about the death of a young worker on a farming property in the Shire of Dandarigan. Shortly, Sally North along. She's the acting WorkSafe Commissioner. Also, just before one, off to Mushave for the results of the sheep market. First, though, to the Bureau of Meteorology, Caroline Crow, with you this afternoon. Caroline, take us for a look around the Southwest Land Division. Yeah, good afternoon, Belle. Uh, so at the moment, uh, there's a bit of cloud around the Southwest Land Division at the moment. Uh, there's some mid-level cloud that's been streaming over from the northwest. Um, or the central uh, west coast. Uh, high cloud uh, has been a little bit of uh, just might get the odd little shower out of it. Um, but there is the chance of a thundery shower uh, or a thunderstorm uh, this afternoon and uh, continuing over the next couple of days through uh, the southern parts or far southern parts of the Gascoigne and getting into those northeastern parts of the uh, southwest land division. So that's uh, sort of looking sort of northeast of around Payne's Fine through to Southern Cross and down to Salmon Gums area there. Not a lot of rainfall in it. Uh, it's pretty uh, dry through that area and uh, that's going to contract southeast and out of the southwest land division uh, over the next day or so. A little bit further towards the southwest, there is a weak front that's just brushed the southwest corner during this morning and moving east along the south coast. It did bring some very light showers uh, southwest of a lime from about Perth through to Bremer Bay and we'll just see those light showers extend towards Esperance during the afternoon. Got, um, yeah, little. Most of the showers were along the south coast uh, through that area there. Over the next couple of days, Bell, we're going to see a, a ridge uh, push through from the west, and um, that's going to become the dominant feature over the state coming into the forecast period for the next uh, four to seven days, really. Uh, and what we're going to see uh, as that ridge pushes through is that the winds over the next couple of days will start seeing uh, move around more for, to uh, the southeast, uh, to the east, and then uh, tending more east northeasterly by Friday and Saturday. We'll also see a warming in the temperatures um, over the next couple of days as well. So the temperatures are a little bit below average or near average over the um, southern half of the southwest land division at the moment, uh, but coming into uh, uh, Thursday, we'll see most of the warming trend uh, from the west at first. We'll see about uh, two to four, even maybe six degrees above average through some parts and then getting four to eight degrees above average through uh, those western and northeastern parts by Friday and uh, Saturday um, through the area there. No weather really expected uh, after sort of uh, Thursday once that front moves and the winds start turning a bit more to the east uh, the showers will clear the south coast uh, from a minimum temperature bell uh, just over the next couple of days it will be a little bit cooler through those inland southern parts so we could see some five uh, sub five degrees in some locations there Brookton for example is looking at four degrees Corrigan four degrees Hyden five degrees and Contanning's looking at uh, near six degrees uh, so 
Collie's about uh, four to five degrees in that area there. So a bit cooler um, just in before it starts heating up. Um, and that's going to be sort of looking into uh, the next couple of mornings uh, until we get to sort of the uh, Thursday or Friday morning where we start getting sort of above those five and more towards the eight to nine degrees bell. And Caroline, what's the story for northern and eastern parts of the state? Yeah, it's it's pretty much clear and sunny through most northern and eastern parts of the state, Belle. Uh, up north, in the uh, particularly in the West Kimberley through the Pilbara and northern parts of the Gascoyne at the moment, it's been very hot. Temperatures have been getting into the high 30s and uh, near 40s. Uh, there's also uh, been some, some fresh winds through southern parts of the Kimberley at the moment. Um, they will gradually ease and we will see those winds pick up again as that ridge pushes through coming into Thursday. Friday uh, and Saturday so particularly in the morning we'll have fresh and gusty winds through good central and northern parts of the state but otherwise generally remaining mostly sunny over most parts through the outlook period bell there is just those uh, chance of some dry thunderstorms today through that far southern part of the Gascoyne into the southern half of the goldfields and just getting into the Eucla and they will contract east and clear by Thursday and there's a slight chance of getting some dry thunderstorms storms through inland parts of the Gascoyne coming into Thursday, um, but otherwise mostly clear, Bell. And any warnings this afternoon? Currently uh, there is just uh, coastal wind warnings uh, for strong winds from the Ningaloo coast down to the Geraldton coast, and that's for today and tomorrow, and then along the south coast as well, uh, Eucla coast for today, extending to the Eucla and Esperance coast for tomorrow. Caroline, thank you for going through all that. Appreciate it. 22 to 1 here on the Country Hour. And in the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning, there has been no rain over 5 millimetres right across Western Australia. Well, as I mentioned a moment ago, WorkSafe is investigating the work-related death of a 22-year-old worker on a farming property in the Shire of Dandarigan, north of Perth, and that accident occurring last Wednesday. She was reported to have been mustering cattle on a quad bike when the bike rolled, causing the fatal injuries. Sally North is the Acting WorkSafe Commissioner. Sally, what detail can you reveal about the accident at this point? Good afternoon, Belinda. In terms of the accident, um, as it's under investigation, the details that you've just itemised are basically all we're able to release at this time. And I can only imagine what the family, the friends, the farm workers are going through and our thoughts are, are with all of those people. Have you been in touch with them? Not not personally, but absolutely. These are very um, very traumatic events for everybody involved and really um, our thoughts are certainly with all of those affected. Now, in the late uh, 2019, it was the federal government mandated a new safety standard for the manufacture of all new quad bikes. Do you know if this particular bike was a new bike or was it an old model without the new safety standards in place? I'm not able to comment on that at the moment, but um, you're absolutely right. The legislation did change that the quad bikes supplied from late 2021 do have to have an operator protective device or it might be called a rider crush protection device. So that um, that was a really important change in the supply laws. And how many quad bike related deaths have there been here in Western Australia in recent years? 
We've been just having a look at that. And over the last seven years, there's been on average about one per year. Um, and nationally, it's, um, it's a very significant issue as well. And do we have the, the figures for recent times, say over the last year or so? Do you have those statistics, Sally? Oh, in the last year in Western Australia, we've had two. Okay. How aware do you think the farm sector is about the dangers of quad bikes? After all the, uh, you know, there's been a series of committees looking at the quad bikes. There's been those new safety standards put in place. Do you believe the message has gone out effectively to the farm sector? That's an interesting question, and I think it probably varies. Um, there was an, an inquiry done into safety in agriculture um, that was initiated by WorkSafe last year, and we did find quite a variation in attitudes towards safety, and I expect it may be similar um, in relation to quad bikes. So just varying from one farm to the next. Mm. Mm. How many, I mean, and you might not know the answer to this, but I mean, from conversations you've had or what came through, you know, in the recent independent inquiry into safety in the agricultural industry, what are you hearing about how many of those old model quad bikes are still in use here in Western Australia without those new safety standards on them? haven't got our statistics on that, but I do think it would be quite substantial. And what it is important to know as well is that there are aftermarket operator protective devices available and there has been research showing how they can be effectively fitted to um, older model quad bikes and that the implementation of these could actually prevent perhaps half of the rollover related deaths that occur with quad bikes. What are, you know, how do these injuries or deaths most mostly occur with these quad bikes? What happens? The most common um, cause is actually due to it rolling over and rollover is associated with risk factors such as the presence of slopes, the speed it's going at, whether there might be hidden objects like rocks or logs in the grass, um, if they're towing or carrying a load, mustering and other terrain issues such as mud, they're all associated with rollover. The other um, kind of um, common cause is collision. So the, the quad bikes actually collided, whether that's with a structure or a tree or something else. And what are the consequences for employers not providing the correct safety equipment and the procedures around riding quad bikes? I guess with WorkSafe's uh, compliance and enforcement approach, we, we um, Firstly, try to get information out and get people to proactively have a look at the information, reassess their use of quad bikes, make sure that they've got good controls in place and that that includes suitable training as well. So firstly, we want people to kind of comply voluntarily. Secondly, we do have inspectors that go out and visit farms and if they find that the systems or the equipment is not um, up to the requirements, then they may issue an improvement notice which gives the business a period of time to comply and it educates them around the requirements um, and at the end of the day there's also the ability under the Work Health and Safety Act to take prosecution action. Um, that is done more rarely than our, than our other types of enforcement but it is available and the, um, the Act is, is modern and up to date in terms of the, the penalties. So what are those penalties in terms of the fines and the possible jail time? 
The penalties uh, at the end of the day are always set by the, the court and in relation to the specific um, circumstances of the matter. Um, so they're very much customised for the situation. Um, but the Act does provide, um, and this is for all um, general duty incidents, so this could be from basically any kind of serious workplace incident, it does provide for a body corporate that's um, found guilty of an offence um, of industrial manslaughter, there's a penalty of up to $10 million, or for a Category 1 offence, it's up to $3.5 million. So that's for a body corporate entity. And in terms of, um, yeah, there is an imprisonment offence for certain categories under the Act as well for individuals that have been found to um, cause serious harm or industrial manslaughter. Very rarely um, used under similar previous legislation um, and still new in terms of work health and safety legislation. And Sally, just to um, clarify, because the text has come through just asking this question, it was a quad bike, it wasn't a side by side? That's my understanding. Yeah. And just quickly, where are you up to with the implementation of those eight recommendations that came out of the recent independent inquiry? Um. We're progressing well with those recommendations that are in WorkSafe space. So we are, um, and those are around a range of things. So information and education, um, having a look at our um, compliance and inspection team and seeing what else we can do to provide an advisory service for agriculture sector. So those are all progressing and we do have industry consultation in a range of forms, including with um, an agricultural safety committee with external um, peak bodies. And additionally, it's Safe Work Month at the moment and there is an event um, which is mentioned on the WorkSafe website, which is focused on agriculture safety uh, to be held later this month as well. Sally, thank you very much. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Belinda. Sally North is the acting WorkSafe Commissioner and uh, the news that WorkSafe is investigating that work-related death of a 22-year-old worker on a farming property in the Shire of Dandarigan. 14 minutes to one, and we'll head to Mushay just before one for the results of today's sheep market. First, uh, an update on Western Australia's grain harvest, which is underway now, mainly all the activity happening in the northern growing regions. Peter Elliott Lockhart is a Geraldton-based agronomist. Peter, how are things progressing? Uh, it's not particularly far advanced. Most say 50% of people have made a bit of a start. Uh, I've heard of one header front that's been bent on a stump and a few other things going on. So we're making progress. Most people are expecting it to be fairly slow and uh, nobody's busting a gut to get in there. I think we just want to make sure we get it off with minimal damage to gear and then uh, start again for next year. What's the mood like this season? I think it's quite fatalistic. Most farmers I'm speaking to, we've had a couple of good ones. You know, obviously this one was in a lowest half percent decile or lowest five percent of years for rainfall. Some guys were lucky and got a bit more summer rain than others. And that extra 20, 30 mils, even up to 50 mils, certainly made a difference on the ground, depending on what you're looking at. But they've, uh, had, they've had a few months to come to terms with the situation this season. Yeah, they've, they've come to grips with the fact that it wasn't going to be very good by the time we got to August. Things were not going to be very good. So they're resigned to the fact that uh, it will be what it will be and then we'll finish up. Hopefully everybody goes away, has a bit of a holiday and uh, comes back and we'll 
start again next year. We'll see what fertiliser price has done between now and, and then and um, see what the inputs are looking like and go from there. Now, we know it's been dry. There just hasn't been as much rain in, in this part of the ag zone this season. But has that been the worst of it, Peter, as far as the weather goes? The temperature's been high and they sort of go hand in hand, no rain and, and hot weather. The lupins, are prob- lupins and canola actually haven't suffered as much as I thought they might. Normally 26 degrees and the lupin flowers all fall off. And we haven't seen a lot of that. The lupins, there are certainly some lupins out there that um, if they go a couple hundred kilos, it'll be interesting. Uh, there's some debate whether it's worth harvesting them or whether you just leave them there and plough them in and not worry about them. Uh, just how much damage are you going to do to your header if you if you try and pick them up? But um, the hot weather a week ago, 10 days ago, and we've forecast another hot weekend this weekend, most of the things had finished by the time that weather came and hit us. We did have a, a week in August, end of August, that was quite warm, and I think that hurried quite a bit of stuff up. Um, and there is a bit of wheat that went white, so we've lost the top four or five grains in the head, some of that sort of stuff that's been going on. So the, the Mullawa frost rather than the dreaded southern frost, but uh, we recognise that it's not going to be as good as it could have been. So that's, that's where we are. Well, it's good to get an update, Peter. I really appreciate it. Thanks for your time here on The Country Hour today. No problems at all, Blender. Peter Elliott Lockhart. He's an agronomist based in Geraldton with elders. 11 minutes to one. The Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Well, over the weekend, more than 700 women camped out at the third annual Cowgirls Gathering. As Jennifer Nichols discovered, it was all about having fun and focusing on their own health and well-being. It's one weekend every year that gets hundreds of rural women cracking, blocking out their calendars and camping out in Kilkeven, an hour and a half's drive northwest of the Sunshine Coast, for an equestrian event unlike any other. <laughs> Amanda Loy founded the event three years ago and it's been growing organically, with more than 700 women taking part this year. It's just a beautiful thing to see them taking some time out for themselves and filling up their own cup. So that's something that I get a lot of reward out of. I think it's something that women don't often do naturally as carers and caregivers. So I think it's incredibly important for them to take some time out and have a bit of, you know, a bit of them time. And there's a common theme through the whole entire weekend. Obviously the horse connects us, but it's really about women supporting women. And that's just phenomenal that we can just provide that over three days. Australian Stockman's Challenge Association champion rider Bridie Hughes drove in her big rig from Biggenden. Yeah, we've been excited for this for weeks uh, leading up to this. We've had quite a hectic year uh, in the challenge industry. Um, we did about 11 or 12 shows. So to come to Cowgirls Gathering and just take a step back and enjoy the environment and the friendly faces, we've been really excited to finally get here. The gathering welcomes riders from all and any disciplines, including dressage, polo cross, camp drafting, stockman's challenge, cutting and trail riding. But not everyone came with a horse or even owned one. As well as equine competitions and clinics, there were ice baths and classes in breath work, whip cracking, roping, drawing, leather work and jewellery making. So I think it's about supporting each other and keeping it 
really safe, encouraging each other. Edwina Pilch from Brookfield in Brisbane says it's a chance to focus on self-care. Women are the backbone of most families. They're the backbone of um, the businesses. They're the backbone of their husbands, their partners, their children. So it's important that we do look after ourselves um, because I think when a woman goes down, that everything comes down. It was the first cowgirls gathering for Anne Mayerhofer, who left uplifted by the experience. I do struggle with depression and only a few months ago I wasn't in a good place but I realised just how light I'm feeling and happy now that I need to do this more often and this being with friends, being with horses, I love being outside camping. Emily Spur travelled from Canungra taking her stallion bandit off her family's farm for the first time. It's just amazing to have such a huge gathering of so many like-minded people obviously and um, yeah all coming here to join together and learn more about horsemanship and about our horses and what they can teach us. From big rigs to tiny tents and swags, what the women camped in was fascinating in itself. Hey this is uh, what we call glamping horse-like style. (laughs) Is that Lynn and I spy on that bed? Of course it's Lynn and Jen. What else would it be? A girl has to get a good night's sleep. But exactly what is an Aussie cowgirl? We put the question out to the crowd. Uh, I would say that a cowgirl is someone who's tough, resilient, brave, outgoing. So I'd like to say that it is someone who horse rides. Determination, drive, passion, because you wouldn't be in horses and you wouldn't do the work that you do on the, the stations and stuff without passion for what you're doing. Um, guts and determination and grit. It's about looking after others and being gutsy in your community. I think uh, connected to nature and animals and I think the intuition that women have as a cowgirl you connect to the horses. And you can see some lovely photos from that cowgirls gathering on the ABC Rural website. Just search ABC Rural and Cowgirl and you'll find Jennifer Nichols' story. Six minutes to one. Well, one of the inspirational speakers at the Cowgirl Gathering was Noella Angel, who spends a fair amount of time in the saddle. But her current saddle is a little different to most. Noella is now a para-equestrian, and that's because after a lifetime of having a weakened left leg due to a congenital blood vessel condition, the 30-year-old underwent surgery last year to amputate the leg. But that obviously hasn't stopped her forging a deep connection with her horse. My horse has no judgment when I come out and, you know, I've had a a change in my disability and all of a sudden I can't kick as hard that side. He just goes, not sure the first time. I'm kind of getting it in the second cue. The third time he's always got it and away we go again for the next adventure. So achieved a lot more than I should have with the leg that I had and uh, pretty proud of what he and I achieved over the years. What's been the response to the people that you've interacted with so far? Really cool. Um, I had uh, I think about 10 or 15 at my little talk today and the demo whip cracking and you know I opened the floor up for questions and there was amazing questions about the disability and about prosthetics and what's the plans and one of the bigger questions was you know what are the type of people that you're going to find to help you build a prosthetic leg and I go you know it's a really insightful question I don't have the answer yet but the fact that you're willing to answer ask those big questions is very cool. Are you looking at getting something that's tailored to equestrian? Hopefully yeah 
like I feel 100% comfortable on a horse without a prosthetic leg. I don't have a problem with that. And for para dressage, it's probably how I'll go. But before amputation and the cha- big change in my disability, I used to do camp drafting and stockman's challenges as well. So I, I kind of wore both the cowdy hat and the dressage helmet. And I miss that other part of myself. So I'm, I just can't see with a very short leg and in the camp, I just can't see how I'll stay balanced you know maybe a bit of a seat belt and tie myself down a little bit not that you meant to but hey it'll be safe I'll fall off otherwise it'll be go to a prosthetic so I can have something a little bit more strapped down that side to bounce off of. Tell me about the role your horse has played for you what's he meant to you through this process? Oh he's done this job a hundred times now like I have had my disability for 30 years and every single time I have a treatment or something drastic happens he's got to deal with that change and I'm lucky I've had him for 15 years so we have a very strong connection and you know I'll go up to him with the new leg and the amputated leg and he sniffs it and goes okay cool what are we doing and he's a horse that you know sulks when you're not around and lights up when you're there and that just hits something inside that makes you get up and get out of bed in the morning. And what's the, uh, the next challenge? Might I see you at an Olympics someday? That is definitely the aim. I think a lot of people are surprised that that is my aim, but right now we're in rebuild mode. But uh, all the way through, we've been talking about getting to Paris in uh, 2024. Sadly, I have two amazing horses, but not the right horsepower to go there. So if someone's got a horse that they'd like to lend me, I would love that. But we're in that mode of trying to find the next one. So if it's not Paris, if we're not ready, then look towards World Equestrian Games in 26 and then towards LA. What makes a cowgirl to you? Determination, drive, passion, because you wouldn't be in horses and you wouldn't do the work that you do on the, the stations and stuff without passion for what you're doing. Para-equestrian Noella Angel, who lives near Adelaide in South Australia, speaking to Kelly Buchanan at the Cowgirl Gathering held in Queensland over the weekend. Two minutes to one here on the Country Hour, and it's off to the Mouche Salyards now to take a look at the sheep numbers, which were up about 1,200 on last week. The final tally was 7,868, and about 2,500 of those were lambs. Terry Birkin, hello. Can you run through those details? New season lambs continue to increase in numbers this week, enjoying slight gains with competition from several new store buyers, feedlotters and processors alike. Old season lambs were mainly merino ewe lambs suited to restocking or plain tail-end lines selling from 2 to $15 a head, while mutton sold at equal rates to previous weeks. New season store lambs enjoyed a slight gain, lifting 3 to $4, selling from 13 to $49, while air freight weights were firm, returning 33 to $74 a head. Trade lambs also sold at improved rates, making 64 to $119, and heavy lambs realised $126 a head. Old season lambs were mostly merino ewe lambs, destined for the paddock for future breeding, ranging from 16 to $45, while the odd pen of heavy dorper lambs reached $85 a head. The best merino weather hoggets made $46, merino ewe hoggets sold to $40, and dorper hoggets selling to $54 a head. Bony ewes ranged from $3 to $26, medium ewes were selling up to $36, and the best ewes sold to $49, while rams ranged from $2 to $29 a head. This is Terry Birkin for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Terry, thank you so much for going through those details today. Good to talk to you. Today, the news is next. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.